Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with the brilliant Sarah Keyworth. We have a really fascinating conversation about everything from upbringing to gender to learning to work and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. I am currently in Glasgow in a hotel room um, writing some jokes for The Bugle and uh, that's going to be fun in Glasgow tonight and then in Newcastle tomorrow. Eh, that. Yeah, what can I say? I really enjoy doing the bugle and I enjoy travelling around with Andy and Chris, the producer, uh, talking about the world. Uh, other than that, what else? Um, of course, my trilogy is always available for free at the Alice Fraser Trilogy. If you Google that or, or look it up on any kind of podcasting platform, if you want a the filmed version of Ethos or The Resistance, those are both available on my Patreon. And thank you so much to my Patreon subscribers for letting me do what I do. It makes my life just such a richer place to be able to work with you to do things that uh, I want to do that you want me to do. Uh, and I always enjoy getting my messages there from you as well as the emails, alicerfraser at gmail.com. You don't have to be a Patreon subscriber to say hello or at alliterative on Twitter. A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E is the place for that. Um, yeah. I think that's all I have to plug. I think that's all I have to say. And I will talk to you again next week. You're having tea with Alice. So, who are you and what are you drinking? Hello, I'm Sarah Keyworth and I'm drinking an English breakfast tea that you might call an Irish breakfast tea or a Scottish breakfast tea. Are they all the same? Yes. You find well, obviously Irish. they have different blends, and I think that would probably offend a lot of Irish and Scottish people. <laughs> I uh, I am drinking a blue tea from Thailand that Andy Zaltzman gave me for last Christmas, and it's still good, and I love it. Well, that blew my tea out of the water, didn't it? A blue t- what's a blue <laughs> it's not tea? A competition. Uh, it's just a kind of it's just a kind of tea. It's like a sort of almost like a green tea, but it's got a bluish tinge. Uh, not not hugely noticeable, but you can probably see it if you look. Just a slight slightly blue tinge there. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and it's it's you've very nice. Dipped your uh, pen in it. Yeah. My pencil. Uh, actually, um, why do you drink English uh, or Irish or Scottish breakfast tea by well, preference? Well, we'll call it English breakfast because it's always been English breakfast in my experience. Um, because I have drunk English breakfast tea since I was a child. My mum, it's very familiar to me. My parents drink a lot of tea. My family drink a lot of tea. I used to go into my mum and dad's room and sit in bed with them when I was a child and they would drink teas and occasionally I'd have a sip. So essentially I was raised on it. You were raised on it so it feels familiar and, and comforting. Cozy, yeah. I have a sort of similar thing in that I used to skip out of school and go to Taka Tea in Sydney. Uh, where Helen and Mr. Taka himself would give me mm. like super high quality gyokuro tea and talk me through it, and I would read fantasy novels and drink tea, and they they had like this red bean and then like wasabi peas or, or sort of not wasabi but like crispy peas, and then they would just bring me like extra tea, and I you know I had no money, I had like eight dollars for the original tea, and they'd just bring me tea oh. all afternoon. That's so nice. It was so nice of them. They're such uh, sweet people. If you're ever in Sydney, do go to Taka Tea and tell Helen I sent you. Uh, you can tell Taka I sent you, but he's very shy. Uh, yes. They're a beautiful couple. He's very shy and very, like, competent and quiet, and he sort of quietly does things. And she, she is um, Hong Kong Chinese and has 
zero personal boundaries. <laughs> she will just sit down and, and show you pictures of her hysterectomy or whatever it oh happens to be. That sounds amazing. You, your, you know, you walk in, she's like, you're too fat, lose a couple of kilos. Would you credit <laughs> them to being your, like, the origins of your tea loving? I think so, yeah. Mm. I think I probably... I was introduced to the idea of tea probably with Alice in Wonderland because as an Alice, I've been given Alice in Wonderlands for Mm -hmm. almost every birthday since I was a small child. In fact, I've just noticed that I have Alice in Wonderland on my mug. Yes, that was given to me by a lovely uh, Tea with Alice listener. Um, No way! Yeah, I think it was the preview of of Savage, a whole tea set. It was delightful. I was Um, once in a production of Alice in Wonderland. Oh, who did you play? I played both the caterpillar and the dormouse. Very good. I was once in a production of Alice in Wonderland. I played the mock turtle. Amazing. Yeah, no. I was going to guess that you might have been (laughs) Alice. It feels like you would fit the bill of Alice quite well. Yes, but, but uh, I was not. I was not Alice, unfortunately. Um, it's kind of a relief because if we are typecasting, and I got the caterpillar, I would be grossly offended. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been uh, wrestling with of late? Oh God, um, so many things. Uh, physically wrestling uh, with the weather. Mm-hmm. It's been very wet. Oh, God, that's exciting talk, isn't it? No, I I went to Australia to film Savage, Mm. and it was so nice to be back in a place where the sky is higher. Yes. I I said this to friends who didn't believe me before, friends of the UK, like, what do you mean the sky is higher? The sky is a fixed height away from the earth. And you're like, no, it just feels more open. Uh, Yeah, you you feel a little bit like you're in a very shallow room. Yeah, and in England I understand why when they shipped people out, convicts and so on, to Australia they felt like it was purgatory or they used analogies to purgatory or hell because it feels very harsh and open and unsafe. Mm. There's something about being in Europe and particularly in England that feels like you're in a little, like a biodome. Yeah. You feel feel a little, it's safe, it's bubbly, it's, it's... it's enclosed and it's a little bit stifling. Mm. Um, and so coming back here, particularly into this season, you know, it's 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 a transition. We I don't mind it. But hot it weather for such a long time, and then it's felt like it's just the the UK has just been like, and now that is done, and we shall be winter. Yeah. And it's just it's been raining solidly for several days, and I'm not good at. Uh, being a functioning adult when it rains. Are you taking vitamin D? Less about health and more about just the ability to... Um, plan. Plan. I, if it's not raining in the single instance that I'm leaving the house, I often will not take an umbrella or wear a coat that has a hood. I did that yesterday. I, I, I have these barefoot mm. shoes that are cloth on the top. And yes. In the morning that was a good choice and by the evening it was a bad choice. I went to see my girlfriend, Catherine, who's a comedian, do her show at Soho Theatre, and it was her the first day of her run last night, and I was running down Oxford Street using a bunch of flowers as an umbrella, <laughs> uh, which uh, was not a good look. But it is good for the flowers. Not I very guess. effective. Yeah, the flowers were having a great time, but I, not so much. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a hard thing. I think you need to have a, a day, for this kind of season, uh, you need to have a daily jacket that is a sort of a waterproofy jacket, and you would well i have one i just didn't put it on oh no because i'm just the least forward planning human being in the world what about one of those tiny like pocket-sized ponchos mac in a sack you mac in a sack Mm -hmm. just have that in the bottom of your bag it's a good idea isn't it i will get you know i bring the wrong back (laughs) i think i have one actually 
But I have like a nice, I mean, I've got it now, a nice like windbreaker that I got for my birthday from my cousin. And um, I just didn't take it out with me yesterday. So it just got very soggy. So you're, you're wrestling with the weather. I'm wrestling with the weather. I'm having some some cool career changes, I suppose, at the moment, but I'm not really sure. When is this going to go out? Uh, it can go out whenever you like, probably Thursday. I don't really know if I can get into the old new agent business, but... Oh, yeah, well, I'll put it out later then if you want to. Talk, talk, talk to me about that. Yeah, we could, well, should we talk about it and then if I can decide whether or not... I mean, I'm not really sure. I'll cut anything out if you want me to cut it out. Yeah, I'll make a note of the time now and we can cut it if I, you feel like it. It's hard to... Well, yeah, I have a new agent. Or I've moved... I've left my agent and I'm moving agents. And that's a difficult time of change. But, like, a, I think a necessary one is quite exciting. So it feels like everything's kind of up in the air at the moment. And we've just finished Edinburgh and everything. It feels like a new school year. Yeah. And that is often, like, a time of unsurety and... It's not, yeah, it's hard to know what's happening next. Well, you were nominated for Best Newcomer. Yes, a year ago. A year ago. Mm. And has, in terms of of career stuff, you've been doing television. I saw you did the roast battle with Catherine. Mm, yeah. uh, I would like to congratulate you on uh, the end of that. Thank you. Because I know that for a lot of people, they find the roast battle hard to do because it is geared towards and the producers sort of push you towards very obvious jokes because yeah. the audience watching doesn't know who you are mm-hmm. so it tends to be jokes about either things that are obvious about you your appearance yeah or things that are quite um straightforward to explain like if religion or religion skin, or if someone has yeah. a history with i don't know an eating disorder or a mental illness mm-hmm. you can mention that and then make a joke about that yeah. and it does tend to be I mean, it is. It's a particular genre of comedy that is quite broad. It's lowest common denominator, isn't it? It's something that everyone will understand in the le- least amount of words and also has to be offensive. But which... I liked... Uh, so if you watch this uh, clip, Sarah f- does a, a, a marriage proposal at the end. Uh, <laughs> it's a sort of a, a really fun thing mm. that you managed to wedge in a political statement that they could not cut. Yes. Because it was... It's an impossibly good piece of television, and you managed to layer it with a, quite a an subtle important point. Yeah, yeah, I loved that so much. Yeah, it was um, it was fun to plan that because I wanted to get that that point across, and also that if anything made the the bit more believable because it it felt like I was making quite an emotional stand at that stage and. Uh, so that had everyone kind of on board with, oh, this is like a significant moment. There's no reason why I should be saying this. If this wasn't a, a real, <laughs> genuine thing. Um, but I also stand by what I said, and I think I, I hope that people remember what I said and don't get lost in the punchline. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was genius. Like you, thank you, you played their game and you managed, and that's ver- a very hard thing to do. I think for a lot of comedians. Uh, you, they feel, and I don't know how accurate this is, but a lot of comedians feel that you can either do these mainstream things or you can be true to yourself. Mm-hmm. That's one of the um, 
it's raining outside. I don't know if you can hear that, but uh, it's one of the things that plays into this idea of selling out. Yes. And it, it is true to a greater or lesser extent. I think it's less true than it used to be because there are more platforms now mm. and more specific ways in which you can reach your audience. Things like podcasts and my Patreon where you can actually yeah. say what you want to say and have people support you directly. So it's fewer of these gatekeepers. But certainly on mainstream television, there is still a bit of that where people will go, oh, you can't say that. Mm. That's not for our audience. Um yeah, and everyone, because there are people I know who have outwardly said I would never do roast battle and things like that, mostly because they don't like the format and they're just being encouraged to be unpleasant. But anyone I speak to, I just say, like, there are classy ways of doing things like that, especially if you're given, like, I'm, I was very fortunate in that I was given the opportunity to do a roast battle with somebody I'm very close with and I know very well and I love very much. And so I kind of knew where the boundaries were and what sorts of things would really truly offend her and what sort of things she would see the funny side of. Yes. Um, and the same in, in reverse with her with me. So I think there are classy ways of doing it. There are, there are ways of sort of staying true to yourself within those. Like, I mean, uh, there's another couple called Bobby and Harriet um, who roasted each other on roast butter. And I thought theirs was brilliant as well. And I think it's just when you, in a show like that, when you see the sort of love and friendship coming through in the roasts, because there are a few that look a bit um, tense and awkward, and, and they're not fun when, you, when you're wondering whether or not the people doing it are actually just not having a good time. Yeah, I think the, it's one of those... It's an, it's an interesting thing, because it does come from the American tradition, and mm-hmm. American culture has more of this roasty thing. But roasts, I don't think, work well unless you know each other well. Yeah. Um, because otherwise it is... And I've seen it done where, where it's kind of a roast segment in a competition mm-hmm. show. I've done a couple of stage shows where that's been a segment of it. And I've seen it go very badly wrong with yeah. two people who didn't know each other at all taking it deeply personally Mm-hmm. Um, and being really hurt by it, and and it's an uncomfortable thing to watch. And when yeah, when somebody you know is roasting you, you kind of know a little bit. Uh, you kind of know what to expect. You know what they're going to say. Like like somebody says to me, "Oh, Catherine's going to roast you." I could I can guess at some of the things she's going to say. Whereas if somebody who I don't know at all is going to roast me, I know that they're going to be basing it on the way I look and my sexuality and things like that. And so. It's going to be unpleasant because it will be likely to be homophobic or sexist or something that I just don't think is particularly, like, exciting comedy. Like, you know, when somebody does a really, really good joke and it's a roast joke, but it's clever and it's funny and and it's offensive to that individual person, but it's not hurting, like, a wider group of people, then you're like, oh, that's, that's smart and that's a skill as opposed to just saying nasty things for the sake of saying nasty things. Yeah. It's a very, it's, I guess it's harder than it looks, but you are put at a disadvantage if you're just having to say, oh, I've been pitted against a person of colour, so I'm, and the producers are trying to make me make jokes about stereotypes about black people. Like, I was thinking about this, about, about you particularly, because you are sort of starting, and not that this career is necessarily linear, but you're starting mm. to get the edges of this kind of mainstream television yeah. success. Do you ever feel uh, pressure to uh, perform as a representative 
of a class of people. Because, I mean, I saw your show this year. Part of it is about having a, a difficult-to-pin-down identity. Um, and yet, if somebody's watching you, they're going to probably use you as a representative of certain groups that you may or may not fit into. Um, I don't know if I feel a huge amount of pressure, but I do feel... Actually, I don't think that's true. I think I do feel an element of pressure that I hadn't quite realised until the last year. But I just did a... Over the summer filmed a TV show um, called Celebrity Coach Trip. It's a reality TV show. And it was it's something I'd never done before, and I'm not sure I'll do it again, but it was with a very interesting bunch of people who are very dissimilar to anyone I ever really hang out with, usually... And it was, uh, it's, it's people from, like, Love Island and Geordie Shaw and Towie and a lot of reality TV stars who, based on the, the nature of most reality TV shows in the UK that are sort of based in things like romance, so, for instance, Love Island, they live or they're forced into very binary positions in terms of gender and romance and sexuality and I was quite I felt quite confusing to them in the first few days of being with them on this coach around Europe for two weeks because the premise of this show is that you're on a coach and you're traveling around and you're voting each other off and yeah and the nature of reality shows is that they are in a very odd way moderately scripted Mm. in that 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 it's not that they're telling you to do anything that you wouldn't naturally do but they are trying to draw out particular storylines. And dynamics, yeah, and and enhance things that wouldn't necessarily normally be there in a bunch of people who don't really know each other. You kind of, in a a situation where it's not being televised or produced in any way, then it's just a bunch of people getting to know each other, whereas there are sort of leading questions, and I I don't know what the questions about me were, but it was... There was definitely... My difference... And my partner's difference, because I was on it with a guy called Francis Bull, who's from Made in Chelsea, who was also kind of being pointed out as quite different from these other people, based on sort of his interests and the noise level of his voice. And, uh, his, and partly his intelligence level as well. Like, um, there was some comments about him. Uh, he knew the name of a word. He knew the name of a phobia uh, that somebody had. And... Uh, and they thought they were appreciated it and they were really interested in it. But then when it came down to the sort of um, the voting situation, somebody who was teaching them words wasn't the kind of person that they wanted to be hanging out with on a coach, which I thought was a fascinating decision to have been made. And so we were kind of being, at first, a little bit rejected because of differences that aren't our differences from the wider world but were differences in this very small group of specific people and my gender was a big part of that I felt a lot it was very strange at the start where I was with these quite like stereotypical manly men who well not manly men but like lads I guess they like and and then girl like feminine women who have always identified as women and wear dresses and uh, like all all the stereotypes that you could possibly imagine about very very feminine women who are very appearance orientated and 
nobody really knew where to put me in these two groups because naturally a group like that sort of separates off into the boys and the girls and they didn't quite understand where I was supposed to fit and the very first day we did like a we were on the beach we did a girl's picture uh, that is such a sort of staple of a girl's holiday I think or, you know you see them all the time on Instagram like a, a big gang of girls like a girl's squad on the beach and so they did one and it's all these amazing women who look incredible in bikinis posing and then me on the end in my sports bra and swimming shorts looking like an absolute goon and just feeling completely out of place but for no other reason than I was different and I it shocked me a bit because I live now in a world of, or like a, in a bubble of very I have a lot of queer friends I have a lot of people who are who play around with their gender who don't identify as one particular gender who um have have all kind of different identities and have more open minds or have experienced even if they are cisgender and they, but they've just m- met other people, they have more experience. Especially in the comedy world, you meet, you can have grown up not knowing anyone, and then you meet everyone's an outsider. Every single person you could possibly imagine. In in the comedy world, part mm. of what makes comedians comedians is that a lot of us are outsiders. Yeah, and I've I, forgotten that I was an outsider because I've been inside the comedy world for so long. That's really interesting. When I was in primary school, my brother and I uh, went to the same primary school and mm. we were ostracised very early on because there was a boys' group and a girls' group and it was that age of, like, you know, boys are smelly, girls yeah. are, you know, have germs kind of thing. And we sort of... And this very weird politicised environment that I don't know where this was coming from, Mm. but that we refused to renounce each other became this point of of huge difference. And so our our primary school group of friends was uh, me, my twin brother, a girl called Annie who played the drums, uh, and and a boy called Michael, uh, who was a little bit sort of fey and he came from like a circus background and... Mm. It was a, just a really interesting thing to have this sudden realisation that you go from your family where your unity is unquestioned mm-hmm. to a sense that it's wrong. And your where you belong is predetermined based on the way that your body is. Yes. And, and uh, like, over the course of the filming and the time that we were in Europe, they... And it was only the it was the first few days they kind of settled in and they got to know me and then I made friends with them and I'm still friends with them now and all this stuff. But it was just fascinating in those first few days. I, I said, I, it felt like I was back at university, like those first few months of being 18 years old and feeling very uncomfortable in my own skin and meeting people who I didn't have anything in common with. And I am not the most socially capable person so I I stir, like I'm I'm not the kind of person who can talk to anyone about anything like so it was just it was a fast it was weird it felt like I'd been sort of transported back to a stage where I didn't know how to communicate with these people and it was a real kind of learning experience for me and it it was good to kind of remind me that 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 world still exists just because I'm not in it anymore doesn't mean that there's that's not still a reality that I can find myself in 
Oh, that's that's a very interesting... University for me was the opposite. I had a very hard time at my all-girls school. I didn't fit in. Mm. I wasn't uh, normative. I didn't have the same interests. And uh, I've I've spoken about this before. I'm not sure if I've spoken about it on the podcast. Uh, We're 250 episodes in, Sarah. I've talked about a lot. Yeah. I I don't expect you to keep up with everything. There was a boy called Andrew Garrick who changed my life... (laughs) And genuinely, I give him all the credit in the world. I went to university. There was a party on. I was awkwardly standing there in Manning Bar. Mm. There was a group conversation happening that I sort of chipped in on. And then the party, the official party, finished. And Andrew turned to me and said, we're all going for a drink. And I went, oh, cool, and went to leave. And he said, come come with us. And I said, oh, is that all right? And he said, you seem like a really interesting person. And it was just this sudden, oh, they don't know. Yeah. That I'm the weird one. Like, mm. at school I had such a hard time. At one point my dad asked me if I would like to move schools and I said no because I thought I was inherently unlikable. I thought yeah, it was, you didn't think it it'd was be something in me. Else. I thought, well, yeah. of course no one's going to mm. no one's going to accept me anywhere so I might as well, you know, I didn't want to fail uh, at being in school. Or there was something about my pride at that. I was a very proud yeah. young person. But my, yeah, mine was, I was very... When I left school, I had the best group of friends. We were, it was this really solid unit and we all spent every day together and we hung out over the weekends and it was just, I was, it was the most confident I'd been at school because I'd had a difficult few years when I was quite young because obviously I was always kind of struggling with my gender identity and then I found this core group of friends and we were just there and solid and I was not ready to let that go. Mm. And I talk about this a lot on stage but didn't want to be gay didn't want to be a tomboy or gender queer or anything like that I wanted to be a feminine woman to fit in with everyone else and went to university essentially as a puppet of a straight woman with long hair and wearing dresses and heels and wanting to have relationships with men which meant that I walked into a situation where I was faking my personality and didn't know how to speak to people and then also unfortunately happened to meet a lot of people who I didn't have anything in common with and so that was the point at which I felt I was inherently unlikable and incapable of making friends I didn't know how to to do it and I was in fact I I regret it quite a lot because I think in a way I rejected some people who are my friends now but at the the early stages I rejected their friendship a little bit because they weren't the kind of people that I wanted to be yeah that's really interesting and like I remember it so clearly mostly because so in my first week like freshers week I met a bunch of people and we went to a flat below the one that I'd moved into and we were all playing a drinking game, some kind of truth or dare situation and somebody was, this guy Sean, he was dead, we were in a different person's flat or something and it was like, oh, he'd been dared by all of us to take off his clothes, strip down to his underwear and get into their cupboard and then wait for the girl who lived there to find him. And then I hit, like, it landed on me and I had to do dare. And the, the, the dare was, oh, you do the same thing, go and join Sean. Take off all your clothes, get stripped down to your underwear and get in the cupboard. 
And so I'm there thinking, well, this is the kind of person I want to be, so I'll do it. And I do it, and we're in the cupboard, and the girl who lived in that flat I didn't know was actually on my course. So she finds us, everyone's laughing about it. It's completely out of character. It's not the kind of thing that I would do or enjoy doing or find comfortable in any way. And then the next week the course starts and she tells somebody about it on the course. And we're friends now and she's lovely, but she was telling somebody about it in a way where it was like, oh, this strange thing happened last week and she did that. Probably saying it in a way that she wouldn't think I would mind because as far as she's concerned, if I did that, it's something I'm comfortable with. And she was saying it to somebody else on our course and this girl, this, this girl that she said it to turned to me and said, oh, I, maybe I misjudged you. Maybe I like you a bit more than I thought. And so essentially I think what had happened was she'd met me and thought I was maybe a bit shy or a bit quieter and a bit no, not very adventurous or not really into partying, heard this story and thought, actually, <laughs> yeah, it is true. It's entirely my personality and, and heard this story and thought, oh, you're actually maybe you are more of the kind of person that I would like you to be. See, I find that all that, st- I find that stuff very odd. Mm. I, I, I don't know. I, I think I am... Um, that's a really interesting example of something that I have wrestled with for a very long time, which is my desire to be taken for who I am rather than what I am. Mm. And and that brings me into not conflict but certainly discomfort with a lot of the modern um, modern arguments about, about identity, that identity uh, is something about external perceptions of you and external presentations of you rather than relationships. I think it's a function of social media because people do see a very surface Mm. presentation and so you want to be able to feel like you know someone and you want to be able to feel like you know someone from their surface presentation Mm -hmm. and you want to be feel... I think a lot of people feel like they want to be known by their surface presentation. So you dress a certain way, you present a certain way because you want people to have an accurate assessment or a more or less accurate assessment of you at first glance. Mm. I feel (laughs) deeply uncomfortable with the idea that you can accurately assess someone at first glance. And so even though I'm supportive of, of of, of all of these movements, I feel distanced from them or separated from them because I, yeah. I like I like the idea that people surprise you or that people are are more complicated, uh, and that's the thing that stuff like that the the idea this, this sort of desperation to get what people are the moment you meet them and I talk about this a little bit in my show about this um I've always been asked whether or not I'm a boy or a girl my whole life and I find that completely fascinating because I'm like why does anyone care like when I was a child I was asked that question by other children and now I look back and I'm like what did it matter to those children but it's just something that they had to know and it's really damaging because for instance lesbian stereotypes a lot of them are quite derogatory and for a very long time the idea that you must be in some way less than a woman yeah and, you might and be, already when women is yeah. a category of less yeah. than in butcher, many ways yeah. a butcher stocky or uh, men hating or like and for a very long time i mean i i used to say things i'd put on clothes and i'd turn to my friends and go do i look too much like a lesbian in this and that was an attitude that i had and i have friends now that don't like being called lesbians they prefer to be called 
gay because I guess it neutralizes it and there's this all and it's the same thing with feminism I guess like there are a lot of women who don't identify as feminists because of the connotations of the word but even among feminists even among uh people who are uh, th- th- I don't know this might this is obviously a generalization from one person who I had a conversation with but they were uh, non-binary and mm. part of the reason that they were non-binary was because they didn't like the connotations of what it was to be a woman that, the, that when people called the wo- them a woman, they had assumptions about yeah. who they were. For me, there the problem isn't with being a woman. For me, that the problem there is with other other people's, people's attitudes surely, towards women. Yeah, my my urge in that instance would always be to expand the definition of woman, not mm-hmm. step away from the definition of not woman, not to abandon it. Yeah, which I felt I now feel that way about lesbians, and now I talk about being a lesbian very proudly, and I think I do like well, I do look like a stereotypical gay woman in lots of ways but I'm like and sometimes I have a twinge of resenting that in some you like, look like a, a you look like the member of a boy band that <laughs> I said this on stage the other day I, I look so gay I look like the secretly gay one in a boy band <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, what I mean is you look very uh, you put the way that you present at least is is sort of uh yeah, gender non-specific. It's yeah, that you Androgyn- are yeah. androgynous, um, good-looking, but not uh, defined. No, I think, yeah, thank you. Um, but it's taken a good few years to be okay with the idea that somebody might take one look at me and go, oh, that's a gay woman. Mm. And I think, I find it really sad that that it's taken me this long and I also feel quite lucky that I'm 26 and I've arrived at that point um because I'm sure that there are some gay women in the world who still feel that way and get much older than I am and still feel that way but it just uh, yeah I guess it just sucks a bit that some of these attitudes towards visible identity are preventing people from enjoying their own identity because they're like well I don't want to be that thing that everyone says we are yes and I, yeah and i i know i i feel uncomfortable with it as well i mm. think partly i grew up reading fantasy novels i always identified yeah. with the very often male protagonist and that's i mean that was not that i would choose male protagonists over female protagonists things like tomorrow pierce's lioness series was mm. fabulous because it had a very strong uh, female lead um but uh i was used to the idea that that um that, that myself was kind of flexible. Yeah. I was. I grew up with a twin brother. I didn't ever feel like I was doing things because I was a, the girl one. I felt like I was doing things because I was the Alice one and yeah. he was doing things because he was the Henry one, mm-hmm. you know, and he has these sort of very masculine traits. You know, he does Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's very muscular, but he mm. also has these feminine traits. He's musical. He's very gentle. He's the primary carer for his daughter. All of these things... I, w- He's just Henry. To me, that's just him being Henry. Yeah. And it, it wasn't until quite late in the piece, and maybe that's a luxury that I've had, maybe that's a massive privilege that I've had, mm. it wasn't until very late in the piece that I felt like my being a woman was ever relevant. Yeah. I... I mean, I, rem- I, I was always very aware of my gender because I tried to reject it as a very young child I got my hair cut when I was five maybe I think 
And, um, but it was often, and I grew up surrounded by boys. I had my brother and that was very close to my two male cousins and wanted to be the same as them and often was treated the same as them and was just one of the gang. And, uh, but occasionally and often quite cruelly, my gender would be like thrown back in my face if we were like having an argument or something. So like we would often like play, have water fights and play and we'd all be wearing shorts and no tops and things. And like that was not an issue because I was a child. So there was no difference in our bodies really. And, uh, but if we were falling out or I was getting upset about something, I remember it so clearly like one of my cousins and my brother would say like, oh, I'll put a shirt on woman. And yeah. if I told them that now, they would be horrified because they're lovely men and they would be, they would hate the idea that they'd been so sort of misogynistic and cruel to me about my gender identity. But I found it really interesting that because they knew it was something I was uncomfortable with, I mean, it's a very classic child thing to go for the sort of one insecurity. Children are incredibly acute with yeah. that stuff. Um, but it was so I was I was made very very aware of my gender difference and uh, when I was uh, sort of allowed to forget about it and also the moments where I was then sort of forcefully made to adhere to it so like I wore a dress to school despite the fact that I would beg my mother not to let to let me wear trousers and just like girls changing rooms and girls toilets and girls shoes like my mom somebody told my mom that boys and girls have different feet <laughs> and so she she wouldn't let me have boys trainers even though when I was a child and I talk about this all the time because I remember one of my like my mom it has I think like a, like lasting trauma from it now because she would take me to buy school shoes and it would take hours because every single girl's pair of shoes would have some kind of embellishment on it. It would be a flower or a, a bit of glitter or something that says girl on the side or something like that. And I would kick up, like the smallest little embellishment, I'd be like, absolutely not. And so I would be screaming down the, the fucking John Lewis kids' shoes section because I want the plainest pair of shoes that they could find and they didn't exist. And now I, my mum and I went back to John Lewis recently and they've essentially taken the labels off their shoes. They haven't made a specific special kind of shoe that is non-gendered. They've just put new labels on that say boy slash girl on all of their shoes. And I, was, I saw it and I was like, that would have changed my life. Such a small thing would have changed my life as a child, just being able to be like, oh, these aren't, I'm not the kid, I'm not the girl in the boy's shoes. I'm, in the, I'm the girl in the shoes. Yeah. Yeah, which is huge. Yeah. I, yeah, I feel like that, that stuff is... Part of the project for me for a lot of a long time was figuring out the things where it is relevant and figuring out the places where it isn't relevant. Mm. And so much of that stuff is not relevant. Yeah. And I spent... Again, I, this is luck and having sort of hippie Buddhist parents and growing up in a, with a big garden. My childhood mm. was spent... Uh, either running around completely nude, covered in mud, yeah. or my brother in my play uniform was, we would have a very, I think it was one of Dad's T-shirts, very long, sort of almost knee-length T-shirt, mm. uh, and then we would belt it and put a stick in it as a sword. Amazing. And that yeah. was our uniform. Like a pirate outfit. And so we'd climb trees and climb, yeah. that, was, that was it, and it wasn't 
gendered in any in any real mm. way. Um, but also I think because my mum was a bit of a tomboy that I had that luck that she wasn't trying to... Uh, she dressed us up as babies, like as you, you, it was the fun thing to do with twins, even if they're cross-gender, is dress them the same, yeah. right? But uh, that I remember the first school play I had when I was about 12 and we had stage makeup on and I came home and mum said, are you wearing mascara? Mm. You look like a girl? Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is confusing in itself, isn't it? Mm. But now I quite like wearing makeup on stage because it feels like... A uh, it feels like a persona on stage. It's part of part of the being on stage. Yeah, I wear uniform. a bit of makeup on stage because it's almost like a like my girlfriend and I call it war paint sometimes. Yes, because it's a little bit like uh, just giving yourself that extra mask to. Well, there's a function element. Remove yourself yeah, from to remove the yourself. This yeah. is this is the persona. But yeah, part of it is also functional that you are exaggerating your features mm-hmm. so that people can see them on stage yeah. so you're not washed out by the by the lights mm. but yeah part of it is absolutely war paint part but of it I, is actually i battle with that on every kind of uh tv record i do where i say i just want what the the guys are having and the women and it's in my experience always been women doing the hair and makeup on shoots which is mm. not to say that there are no male makeup artists but Often, and I think maybe if there was a male makeup artist, he would probably get it more, given that he was working in a more sort of female-dominated industry. But every woman I've had who's doing my hair and makeup for a shoot will not understand that I don't want, uh, like, eyeshadow or mascara. or. And so when I say I just want what the guys are having, I mean... I just want what the guys are having. And I'm sat next to a man right now who is a comedian who is having a little bit of foundation and a little bit of colour on his cheeks so that he doesn't look washed out. And you're trying to put mascara on me. And the argument is, oh, but they won't be able to see your eyes. And I'm like, well, then how can they see Joe's eyes? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. particularly as men's eyes are hormonally, I think, a little smaller. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine who's transitioning... uh, to, from female to male and mm. he said oh my eyes are a lot smaller and I had to look it up and it's apparently testosterone increases the fat deposits under your eyes so men do have a uh, smaller that's why women have this exaggerated eyes yeah and that's why when women are doing makeup to make themselves look more, more feminine, feminine they they'll exaggerate the size of, of, of their eyes yeah which I find uh, super interesting it is super interesting fun. for but me it's... the argument is always never touch my hair please yeah um, because uh you have very specific, I have very specific, specific hair, hair specific needs, and yeah. I don't do anything to it. Yeah, I will. Uh, I will just put, put conditioner in it and sleep with it in a towel mm. at night. And then if you do anything else to it, it turns into an eighties frizz. But I, I just, never get a haircut. I can never be bothered thinking about yeah. it, and I don't want to fuss with it. But I always find it completely fascinating that the one thing that is stopping these makeup artists from understanding that I don't want to wear much makeup. Is, is what's going on in my pants. Yeah. And that if I looked almost exactly the same but was a man, they would just automatically... Not put mascara me, on you. Yeah. And then in the reverse, if a guy came in and said, I'd actually like a little bit more makeup than you would usually give 
Yeah, I'd like some mascara and a touch of lipstick. Yeah, and that would maybe that probably wouldn't pass without comment. And it's just it's so. Even now, it kind of surprises me that like I did a shoot over the weekend, and I said just as much as you put on the guys, and I don't don't mind mascara because I know that facial expression wise, like eyes popping, it's useful on camera and things, so I don't mind a little bit of that. And I walked out of the hair and makeup room and then I ran into one of the guys I was filming with and I looked at him and then I looked in the mirror at my face and I thought, she's she's put more on me. Yeah. I don't know how she managed it without me noticing, but this is, we are not wearing the same <laughs> amount of makeup right now. Yeah. And it's just like... I'd, I'd, I'd love to kind of talk to somebody, like I'd talk to that makeup artist about it and just go like... What was going on there? Like, what went through your head there where I said, just do exactly what you did to him and you obviously subconsciously or consciously went, no. Yes, it's not yeah. enough. That isn't enough for this person. Yeah. It would be interesting if you went in, I don't know how you'd do it, but if you went in identified as a man. Mm. Because I, I don't know if they would do the same thing. I think if I went in as I am and said I identify as male, they would do exactly the same thing. Yeah, but I think if I changed my physical appearance slightly so that they believed I was born male, yeah, then they would do it differently. Which is odd. Yeah, that is an odd. That's an odd thing. Mm-hmm. Because you don't identify as not female either. No. So, but can't a woman just not want makeup? Exactly. Apparently not. No. Um, and it's so. It's obviously that the. the these people are just doing their jobs and it's what they've always done and they do the makeup on the women and they do a little bit on the men. But it's it's fascinating that just a face, because mm. that's all they're working on is a face to them. It's clearly such a different beast in some way. Like It's like, no, this is a male face and a female face and they are treated differently. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I don't love that, but I think when I say I love that, I mean yeah. that is such a juicy and fascinating idea yeah. uh, to me that that this is this is so kind of deeply embedded, and particularly mm. in the career that you're in, where where again this this distinction between what you are and who you are becomes increasingly erased, yeah. um, and and there's even the distinction between who you are off stage and who you are off stage. Mm becomes erased um or or wobbly and you're not sure i for me it's always a matter of of keeping something back there's things that i will not do on stage not because i think they're the wrong thing to do on stage but Mm. because i need for my own comfort to have a sense of a distinction yeah a boundary of some sense public life and private life there's nothing really that i hold back of talking about on stage in terms of material, and I know that you have quite like strict, like things that you won't write about. Yeah, but I mean that but, partly for me is an artistic uh, generating thing. Mm, if to I push you to yeah, talk about, yeah. I, th- I started in poetry. My mum was an incredible poet, mm-hmm. and the idea of of I find it more interesting often to at least start with a structure of a poem, what kind of poem I want to write. Yeah. Sometimes it'll turn into free verse, but if you start with free verse, then it just means you can write anything, and mm-hmm. that's almost intimidating. You can't, unless something... Ha- it, it's, it not, it's not intimidating. What it means is that it leaves your creativity dependent on these sort of 
almost um, uh, almost inchoate things like inspiration or mm. something happening to you. And so you're always writing in response to something. Whereas if you set yourself a limit, then that itself opens opens you up. If you can't yeah. write about something, then what can you write about? It begins. It, for for yeah. me, a limit is very generative. This is, even if it's like a rating, this is a PG mm. rating, and then you go, okay, so these are the things I can't talk about, or maybe I want to talk about them, but I have to figure out a way to talk about them that isn't uh, that isn't so crude, so yeah. crude, or or I find that often I'll get accused of being uh, dirty mm. in things like I'll do the Bugle podcast, and I don't think I am more dirty than the guys who do that show, and I certainly. Uh, it's more the reality that I will try not to use words that they've used to mm. describe something. So I will, I'll find a left-hand way of describing whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Rather than calling something shit or bullshit, I'll, I'll find another way to say it just yeah. because I don't want to use those words because they've been used before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think um, that's something that I might try and do because I've written two hours now about lots of, about many things and lots of different bits but the root of each show has been talking about gender and I talk a lot about gender and I think moving forward (laughs) that's alright I think moving forward I would like to move away from talking about gender so much in that it would be good to have some space from it so that if I ever wanted to revisit talking about it but I think the thing is that I well, go well, away and think be, about it. If you if yeah. you say if you put it off off your writing thing, mm. maybe it'll come back in later on in the piece. But if yeah. you if you just say I'm going to not talk about X, then what have you got left? Yeah. What's interesting? What? Or even if even if you make it, I'm not going to talk about my gender. Yeah. I do that with relationships. I don't want to talk about my relationships, but mm-hmm. here are interesting things that I've noticed about relationships in general. Yeah. Or, or the ways in which people treat other people, I think that's that makes it uh, fruitier. It makes it more it makes it more challenging mm. to me. And then I feel like I can say things that other people aren't saying or have some have, have an interesting take. Yeah, I think I think maybe it's something I'll try and sort of move out of that comfort zone. I guess that's I feel exciting. Like I've explored a lot of what I have to say about gender and I just don't want to be kind of covering the same ground all over again. Yeah. But I think most, like, almost anything I say, most of the stuff that I write will, like, ultimately be influenced by my gender identity and just who I am. I feel like that a little bit about feminism, which has come a little bit more into my shows recently, but Mm. always the thing I try to remind myself of while we're in this bubble, in this comedy bubble where people are talking about women on stage and all of that discussion is happening again and again and again and again, in the wider world they don't know that discussion is happening. Mm-hmm. And we have this chance, this great chance, of being first-wave feminist. Yeah. Like there's so many complex feminisms out there at the moment, so many arguments within feminism about what feminism is or should be or might be or can be and and arguments and everything, and then you just go, actually, I've got, I've got the same, and I know this sounds a weird thing to say, but I've got the same privilege as the suffragettes had. I just get to fight for my right to do the job mm. and do the job well. And if I do the job and I do the job well, 
that in itself is bringing the cause forward. Yeah. The more good female comedians you see, the more the world opens up mm-hmm. to you as a viewer, as an audience member, the more the likely more, you are yeah. to see another one. So if I just go out and make someone laugh, and I do like to talk about feminism sometimes and I think I have an interesting take on it sometimes and all mm. of that stuff aside, if I just make a poo joke that makes somebody laugh, that is genuinely a good thing. Yeah, and it's teaching people, influencing people that women can just be funny about anything. Yeah. Like, and they don't have to talk about all the things that people think women talk about on stage. Like well, it went from women, and... women talking about periods to yeah. uh, n- women aren't allowed to talk about periods because mm. that's all women talk about to recently I think I've seen every female comedian do a joke about how you're not allowed to talk about periods yeah, yeah, yeah. and men <laughs> joke yeah. about periods, mm-hmm. which I, I love your period joke, by the way. If Thank you. If you uh, want to look it up on YouTube, it's um, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival Gala. Uh, Sarah has a great a great period joke, which I, I highly a, recommend. A rule about that joke, which is if I can get through the setup, which is just talking about sanitary items <laughs> without somebody <laughs> making a noise of disgust, then uh, I will stop doing the joke on stage. But That's until nice. this point, every time I just do the setup, not even the punchline, which I will concede is gross. It's deliberately gross yeah. and excellent. But the setup is just describing a sanitary out- item yeah. and then people are freaking out about it and I'm like, well, no, you, you are the people that need to hear this. Uh, so look, look Sarah up online. Where can people find you online? Uh, I have a website, which is www.sarahkeyworth.co.uk and I have Twitter, which is Sarah K Comedy, at Sarah K Comedy, and um, uh, all of the Instagrams and Facebooks and all that, that jazz. And I post my live gigs on Instagram which has just reminded me that I need to start doing that again I'm so bad at keeping people updated on my gigs Uh, thank you so much for having tea with me thank you for making me tea (laughs) what a joy Monday morning when she comes
comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying down your doffers, cry up your ends. Lowly rifle doll, lowly rifle day. And when the boss he looks round the door, tie your ends up, doffers he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifles all, lally rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day.